Good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, always excited to have guests with us. If you're guests visiting your family during this holiday time season, uh, welcome to First Baptist Church of Thibodeau. Let us know how we can help you, pray for you. And if you are a member of this local congregation, um, know that we are praying for you guys as well. With that said, we are walking through the book of 1 Samuel, and we are in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 24 through 35. The title of the sermon is The Marks of False Repentance. The Marks of False Repentance. Okay? Let me ask you this question. All right? This is not audience participation. This is not Sunday school. But this is just a rhetorical question just to think about. And I'll answer the question for you as well. Is there a repentance that God rejects? Is there a repentance that God rejects? There is. There is. To answer the question, yes. There is a repentance that God rejects. It is a repentance that focuses on self rather than focusing on God. By definition, true repentance is focusing on God. And it is a product of genuine and true faith. You get this. True repentance focuses on God. False repentance focuses on self. True repentance is a product of genuine salvation. So repentance can be genuine only if it is a product of genuine salvation, genuine faith. I love what one theologian mentioned, Louis Burkhoff. This is what he mentions. He says, Confession of sin and reparation of wrongs are fruits of repentance. Repentance is only a negative condition and not a positive means of salvation. True repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. While, on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there is also real repentance. The two are but different aspects of the same turning a turning away from sin in the direction of God. What a great definition here of repentance. So we must ask ourselves, Saul's response in 1 Samuel chapter 15, does it describe true repentance or false repentance? Does it describe true repentance or false repentance? Well, it describes false repentance. As a matter of fact, I want you to pay close attention to this. Coming closer, listen and pay close attention to this. Saul's repentance here is described for us in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. I mean, read that passage of scripture so you can get context. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they have are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a description of Saul. Why would you say this, Kevin? He was equipped by the Spirit of God to be king. Saul tasted 
of the gifts of the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God came upon Saul and he prophesied. When was the last time you prophesied? Saul prophesied. Saul prophesied. He knew the truth of Yahweh because Yahweh spoke to him through Samuel. So as we evaluate Hebrews 6 and we place the life of Saul in juxtaposition, we realize that Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 6 describes Saul. Describes Saul. Yet at no time in the long account of Saul's life do we see him turning and trusting in Yahweh for salvation. We, we can read through the Old Testament and read the account over and over about Saul, and, and there's no evidence of Saul giving his life to Yahweh, serving Yahweh in that sense. But friends, as a result, what we see is that Saul was rejected by God. Rejected by God. His false repentance was rejected by God. We have this great description at the end. You notice that Saul grabbed the tassel of Samuel's robe and yet tore it. Samuel turned to him and said to him, in the same way, God has torn you. God has separated you. God has pulled you from the kingdom. This is a very important passage of scripture. This is a warning for those of us who like to play church. This is a warning for us who know biblical truth, but yet we deny it with our actions. This is a warning for those of us who like to make the right confession, but yet we are so focused on ourselves and not on God. So please, come in closer and pay close attention to this sermon. Close attention to the words here given to us. This morning, I want us to observe two marks from false repentance. Two marks from false repentance. Our goal here is to avoid these marks and to pursue biblical repentance. What are the marks? Mark number one, false repentance is riddled with self-deception. Do you get this? It's riddled with false or self-deception. We tend to deceive ourselves, to think that we are perfectly fine. And we deceive everyone around us. And we deceive ourselves. And we walk through this life thinking that we are okay with God when we are really not. Really not. It's riddled with false deception. Two, we see this in verses 24 through 25. And two, false repentance honors self more than it honors God. False repentance honors self more than it honors God. We see this in verses 30 through 35. Join me as we pray together. Father, we are here before you, Father, and all we want to see is Jesus. We want to see Jesus behind us. We want to see Jesus with us. We want to see Jesus in front of us. We want Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We read passages of scriptures like this, and we say to ourselves, God, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of sin? And we voice the same words that the Apostle Paul voiced in Romans chapter 6 when he says, thank be to Christ Jesus. 
So be with us, O Lord. Speak to us, O Lord. Let us not trust in our works, but let us trust in the finishing work of our Lord Jesus Christ. But teach us what we do not know. Make us what we are not. And give us what we do not have. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. The first point is false repentance is riddled with self-deception. So what is our context here? The context is simple. If you look at chapter 14 and also chapter 15, we notice that the Lord commanded Saul to go and to kill the Amalekites. The Amalekites were very dangerous people. They, they were people who would kill women and children and they would kill uh, all the people around them. And in one particular situation, when the Israelites were going through the wilderness, it, it was the Amalekites who attacked the women and children. So, so God actually said to the Amalekites that they would pay for what they have done. And now you have the first king, Saul. God is now reminding Saul of what he commanded. So God is saying to Saul, go and kill the Amalekites. Destroy the Amalekites. Now I shared this with you before. There isn't a holy war for us today, right? The only war that we fight today as Christians, right, is our spiritual war, the spiritual warfare. So we don't say to ourselves, well, I'm just going to go ahead and destroy all of Iran because, because I just don't like these people. They're against God. I'll just destroy them. No. For a Christian, we don't call, we're not called to do that, but we're called to proclaim the gospel news. Now, I'm not saying wars are bad. I'm just saying for us as Christians, the main war is simply a spiritual warfare. So we, we notice that God asked Saul to destroy, but Saul did not destroy everything. Saul kept the sheep and the oxen, and he kept the king of the Amalekites by the name of Agog, right? So here specifically, we noticed two cents of disobedience. The first disobedience we notice in chapter 13, when God said to Saul to go and meet Samuel at Gilgal. But what did Saul do? Instead of waiting on Samuel, he sacrificed animals. And here again, we notice what God did to Saul. God asked Saul to go and to destroy the Amalekites. And what did he do? He kept certain things. Now God is rejecting Saul. So much so that Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams in, verses 22, in verse 22 of chapter 15. Samuel is saying, don't miss this, don't miss this. I don't have it up there, but I do want you to pay close attention to this. And if you can, write this down. Samuel is saying formal worship cannot be substituted for a life of heart felt obedience. You get it. Saul was saying, well, I can, I, I can sacrifice animals. I could do these things. I could do all of this, and God will be pleased with me. But you cannot, you cannot focus on formal worship when you're not obeying God. You cannot focus on raising your hands, singing as loud as possible, but in your heart, you're consistently disobeying God. So what would you do when you realize that you cannot fool God or his prophets, right? 
Samuel saying, I'm going to sacrifice all of this. And what, what, what will you do when you realize you cannot fool God? You cannot manipulate God? Well, the natural thing for us would be, well, how can I really be honest and open? But that's not what Saul did. That's not what he did. No, notice what happens here in verses 24 and 25. He says, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord your and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Now stop. You might be saying, Kevin, what is wrong with Saul's confession here? As a matter of fact, he, he has confessed. He said he has sinned. That should be good, Kevin. What about other words that Saul mentions here or mentioned here? He, he mentions transgress, the commandment of the Lord. He pleaded for pardon and restoration. All of these things seem to be very positive, but there remain one doubt. And the doubt is that Saul's confession was not forgiven by God. Do you see how close we can get to genuine confession by saying all the right things, but yet our hearts are so far from God. And this is exactly what Saul's problem here. He confessed. He says, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandments of the Lord. Now please pardon and restore me. But here are several issues with Saul's confession. Are you ready for this? Maybe you've read this text and as Clay was reading, you were like, man, what is wrong with this? Or you, you read throughout the week and you say, what is wrong with Saul's confession? Why didn't God forgive him? Is God a mean God? Is God, is God just showing favoritism by God telling Saul, I have chosen one who is better than you and you're choosing David? Why, why are you choosing David and why are you rejecting Saul? At least he confessed God. Here are several problems with Saul's confession. Are you ready for this? One, which is the most important clue here, is that neither Samuel nor the Lord accepted Saul's repentance. Something had to be wrong with it. Something had to be wrong with it. As a matter of fact, notice with me in verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Kevin, what about Scripture? What do we know about Scripture when there is genuine repentance? How does God respond to genuine repentance? Well, Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, Whoever, whosoever conceals his, his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is the word of God. This is the character and attribute and disposition of our Lord. If you, if you continue to uphold and conceal your sins, you will not be forgiven. But if you ask for mercy, God will give it. He will give it. This is our God. 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is the problem here? Augustine stated this. He says, while to the human ear, the words were the same, the divine eye saw a difference 
in the heart. So you would put Saul and you put David right next to each other and you say, wow, both of them have confessed. They are both good. But the Lord will say, no, the heart is a problem. The Lord sees the heart. We might not, we cannot see the heart, but God sees the heart. And God saw the heart of Saul. What else is wrong with Saul's confession here and his repentance here? Saul confessed because he had been caught. Do you notice this? Samuel went to Saul, and there are three evidence here, right? The bleating sheep, right? The lowing oxen, and then the king, the Malachite king, is standing before Samuel. There are evidence to show that Saul has disobeyed God. And Samuel points this out, and therefore, Saul is confessing. But stop, Kevin. We've been too hard on Saul. What about David? Didn't the same thing happen to David? David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against God. Was it the fact that Nathaniel or Nathan went to him and Nathan was the one who said to him, David, you have sinned, and then and therefore David confessed? Are we being too hard? No, friends. Even if in that very situation David did, I need you to understand one of the greatest things about genuine confession is when it's provoked by our inner conviction rather than us being exposed by the outside. Don't, don't miss this. I want you to observe with me. It is very important for us to listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Spirit of God. And when we sin against God and the Spirit is consistently convicting us that we are called to obey and listen to the Spirit rather than waiting until the last moment when we have been caught and say, okay, God, I will I I'm going to confess. God, please do something then. God still works in that, but one is better. And the one that is better is to listen to the Spirit of God. Richard Phillips states, how much better is any confession when it is prompted by inner conviction rather than public exposure? He is absolutely right. What else is wrong with Saul's confession and repentance here? Saul did not grasp how offensive his sins were to God. Every target of your sin is God. It hits God. You sinned against your children. You sinned against your spouse. You sinned against a fellow worker. You sinned against people around you. The number one target is God. It's God. And Saul failed to see this. That his number one target here is God. God is offended by Saul's transgression. That's what he mentioned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, your words. And he tells Samuel this. Saul's plea for forgiveness and restoration is made to Samuel, you notice this, and not God. Do you see it in your own Bibles? He's making a plea here, but it's to Samuel. I have transgressed against the Lord. Now pardon my sin, Samuel. But true repentance turns to God. Only you and you alone have I sinned against. This is exactly what David said. 
David sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against Uriah, sinned against the nation of Israel. David made one of the most positive, amazing proclamation when he says, you and you alone have I sinned against. Why would David say that? Because he understands the main target of his sin is God, and he has offended a holy God. And friends, when you come to the realization your sin has offended God, and your desire is to be before God and repent before God, then you will make it right with others, and you will make it truly right with others. But false repentance is not making it right with God. Just apologizing to people, saying, I'm sorry, saying, I won't do it again, but they will continue to do it. But true repentance is before our Lord. Notice this with me. Coming closer, and don't miss this. David was so consumed with his offense to God that nothing else could be considered before confessing to the Lord. That wasn't so. It wasn't Saul. Fourth, what can we learn about Saul's repentance and confession? Notice with me that Saul makes excuses for his conduct and his confession. What excuse is he making here? Notice what he mentions in the text as you're reading through it. He said, because I feared the people, that's why I sinned. Does that remind you of anyone else, our parents, our grandparents, our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? Who sinned against a holy God, and yet they wanted to be a part of this blame game. See, blame is a tactic we use to distract others from our failures. We do that often, right? I'm going to blame someone else. You, you don't understand. Yeah, look, he, he was more offensive than me. He was the one who caused me to do this. The reason why I'm an alcoholic is because my dad was an alcoholic. The reason, why, the reason why I don't love my wife like I should because my dad was never home. The reason why I'm not submissive to my husband is because my mom wasn't submissive to her husband. So it's not my fault. It's, it's, it's everyone else around me's fault. Blaming is constantly, constantly pointing to other people. So, so what? So what? It won't be focused on you anymore, right? There lies the problem with the blaming game. If we can look externally for fault, then we do not have to look internally at our own faults. See how easy it is to blame others? Because you never want to look at your own fault. You could blame and blame and blame and blame and blame. And this is exactly what we have here. This is what Saul is doing. Saul says, because I feared the people, this is why I disobeyed God. This is in contrast with David's confession. Do you notice in Psalm 51 when David confessed and repented, notice what he said to the Lord. He said, justified in your own words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, David said to God, I deserve to be condemned. That's what God wants. For us to be honest, not to blame someone else because of our sins. I gossip because this person gave me enough information about their life to gossip. See, just going back and blaming people. Constantly blame people. 
We never want to look inwardly. Never. It's easy to do that, right? And that was the problem with Saul. But friends, come in closer and don't miss this. We can gauge Saul's lost condition by comparing him to Pharaoh. There's something here I want you to see. Because if you observe Pharaoh himself, how God, in the book of Exodus, the ten plagues, and God is showing himself to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and God is disciplining Pharaoh, do you notice what Pharaoh did? Eventually, this is what Pharaoh said. He says, he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Wow. Did you notice that Pharaoh confessed? But was Pharaoh's confession a godly confession? Was his repentance a genuine and true repentance? No, it wasn't. Pharaoh then begged Moses to forgive him of his sins and asked Moses to plead with God to remove the plague. In the same way, Saul is doing the same thing as Pharaoh. Pharaoh's not going directly to God after you've observed the wonders of God, the works of God, and yet you are not turning to God. And we know, we know that Pharaoh wasn't saved. We know that. So friends, we must avoid the pitfall that Saul was in. Having this false repentance which leads us to the second point. Follow with me and see for yourself. False repentance honors self more than it honors God. Take a look at verse 26 with me very carefully. Look in your own Bibles. Chapter 15, verse 26. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Here we notice something very important. What motivated Saul to further disobedience? This is the question we must ask. What motivated Saul to further disobedience? And here's the answer. It was misdirected fear. Misdirected fear. He feared the people rather than fearing God. If you remembered very carefully, when God called Saul to be king, God said to Saul, you must fear me and not the people. God also said to Saul, you must obey me and not the people. What is Saul doing? He's fearing people and he's obeying people. And here is a great principle for us to observe. Coming closer and write this down if you can. A very simple principle but yet very profound principle. If you fear God, you will not fear people. But if you fear people, you will fear God. If you fear God, you will not fear people. But if you fear people, you will fear God. What an important passage of Scripture. I think I read this wrong. Let me read this again. <laughs> if you fear God... And I promise you, I wrote this down too. <laughs> if you fear God, you will not fear people. But if you fear people, you will not fear God. That's it. That's it. Sorry. What a very important concept, right? And this is exactly what we see with Saul. He feared people, and therefore, he did not 
fear God. I love what Benjamin Franklin mentioned. He once said this. Coming closer, get this. He once said, he that cannot obey cannot command. He that cannot obey cannot command. Now, I really want to take this and frame this and put this in my house. Tell my children, when you're trying to tell your other siblings what to do, you must obey me first. Right? Put it in your homes with your children. Tell your children. If you cannot obey, you cannot command. And I think in a generation that we live in today, we, we need this. And, and, and this was the issue with Saul. Saul could not obey, but he wants to command. But you cannot. And for God, God wants his people to obey so that they could command. So here we have it that Saul is rejected. Samuel rejects Saul. He turned away from Saul. But here is this beautiful picture. I, can, I mean, I, I wish I was there to see this. Because here is, here is Saul who erected this great monument, praising himself, patting himself on the back. I have obeyed God. I have obeyed God. And here is Saul at Gilgal awaiting for Samuel to praise him. In two situations where Saul basically disobeyed God, both of the situations Saul is waiting. In the first situation, he's waiting on Samuel to come, and yet... He disobeyed. In this situation, he's waiting on Samuel to come so Samuel could pat him on the back. But what happens? As Samuel walks up, Samuel sees the evidence of Saul's disobedience. The bleating sheep, the, uh, the lowing oxen, and Agag himself. And Samuel tells Saul, you have sinned against God. And as Samuel was turning away from Saul to walk, Saul got on his knees, perhaps, and grabbed a tassel of Samuel's robe. Now, this is very profound because this tassel based on the Torah was basically used to show the Ten Commandments, God's commandments, that the person who has it is one who is keeping, walking by the Ten Commandments of God. And here we have it. What a great image that Saul grabs this tunic, grabbed the tassel, pulled it, and tore it. In the same sense, Samuel turns to Saul and said, Huh? This is exactly what God has done to you. Like you have torn my tassel. God has torn you. God has separated you. God has rejected you from being king of Israel. Friends, this is very important for us to see. How symbolic. What a great reminder here. But don't miss this. In that, Samuel tells Saul that God has chosen someone else. God has chosen a neighbor. A neighbor who is better than you. And this is a great transition because from now on, it transitions from Saul to David. Who is this neighbor? It is David. But what makes David better than Saul? Friends, David was not a perfect man. He made a lot of mistakes. But genuine faith leads to genuine repentance. The better here is faith. Do you get it? The better here is faith. One had genuine faith and one had false faith. One had real repentance and another had false repentance. That's what makes David better is that David served God. Is that God elected David? Is it God saved David? Is it David was saved? Don't miss this. 
But notice a lack of concern for God's offended honor here and the offense of his own sin by Saul. Saul focuses on his own restoration. See for yourself in verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Don't, don't miss this. I love what Alistair Begg mentions here. He, say, he states, the kind of repentance that reveals itself in godly sorrow does not immediately ask for reinstatement. You get it. When you sin, sin before God, you're not looking for honor. You're looking for his honor. That's the fruit of true repentance. Saul's plea should have been like the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. Do you remember this story of the prodigal son who left his father, started eating out of a trough, when he realized that he can be a servant in his father's house, he repented. But notice the words of this man. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Here it is. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's true repentance here. I'm looking to be honored looking to honor God. Looking to honor God. Notice the words of Saul here. Do you see it? Notice what he says. My people want to be honored, right? Of sin, yet honor me now before the elders of my people. Notice what he says about the Lord. Your God, your Lord. One who is truly repentant says different. He says, my, my God and his people. These words are very important. My God, his people, is what Saul should have said. But it shows exactly that he wants to be honored. He wants to be reinstated rather than true biblical repentance. Coming closer, friends. Write this down if you can. True repentance is motivated by the realization that we have offended a holy God with our sins and not by merely wishing to escape the consequences of sin. We realize that we have offended a holy God. Genuine repentance makes no excuse for sin, but pleads, pleads only to be restored in the sight of a holy God. We see the opposite with Saul here. We see the opposite here, friends. So just think, think with me, coming closer and get this. To think that repentance is focused on what I'm doing takes the emphasis away from the crucified Savior and it places the emphasis and spotlight on the sinful sinner. That's the problem. That's the shift here. That's the problem here. This is what the world tells you with self-help. Self-help. It's all about you, boo. It's all about you. Let's focus on you. Focus on trying to make yourself happy. And the more you try to do that, guess what happens? When you center everything on you, there is nothing good here. There is only darkness and despair and ugliness. But... When you focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and your focus is on him, this is what happens. There is light. There is hope. There is salvation. There is peace. There is beauty. The world is paralyzing a lot of people, and even Christians are beginning to do this too. It's self-help. It's all about me. I'm going to focus on me. I'm going to focus on my happiness. But your happiness is in Christ. And the more you focus on Christ, the happier you will be. The more satisfied you will be. And here's a beautiful thing about focusing on God, making Jesus your all, centering on Jesus. The more you do that, you find yourself killing sin and self in your life. The mortification of sin and self. You kill self. You deny self. How do you do it? By focusing on Christ. And the more you focus on Christ, the more you exalt Christ. This is the beauty here. This is the beauty here. So Samuel finished the work that Saul was commanded to do. He sees Agag. He pulls him aside. And here's Agag thinking his life was going to be spared. And Samuel took the sword and killed him and said to him a very important thing, like you have left many women childless. I will leave your mother childless. And Samuel accomplished the work of God here. But I don't want you to miss this as we close with this. In verse 35, it mentioned that Samuel went and he grieved. And then it ended by saying, God regret that he made Saul king. Two times in chapter 15, we're given this description of God regretting to make Saul king. And two times, right next to each other, we're given the description of Samuel grieving. The regret here is not like a human regret, but God was surprised that Saul was going to sin against him. The regret here gives us an idea that God wanted his people to respond respond. So the Israelites should have said, yes, God, we are wrong. The regret here should have brought a sense of sorrow in the hearts of the people. But, but notice this, it did bring sorrow in the heart of Samuel. Samuel was moved mightily because of this. And friends, in the same way, when we see people who are walking away from the faith, that should bring a sense of of, of, of crying and grieving in our hearts. When you notice that Christians who used to be here, sitting in the pews where, where you are, sitting next to you, but they are no longer coming to church, going to church, that should grieve your heart. When you see a brother or sister struggling tremendously in his faith, that should grieve your heart. When you see nations turning away from God, that should grieve your heart. This is not a point for us to rejoice that God's judgment is upon someone or upon a nation. No, we must cry out and have the heart of God when we see people are not walking with God. This is the application here for us. Is there genuine faith in your life? Is there genuine repentance in your life? Then, beloved, serve him. Focus on him. Exalt him. Exalt him. The goal here 
is not to look at repentance and say to ourselves that, man, I, I, I have to conjure up. The analysis that we've just done. Don't, don't miss this as I close with this. The analysis of repentance, as we focus on false repentance and true repentance, is not for you to say to yourself, well, I want to do better at repentance so I can be betterly, or, 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 or I, could, I could be, I'm looking for a word I lost. I can be properly restored or, or, or in a sense of um, be restored better than anyone else, Okay. Let me say this again. We do not want to look at this analysis of repentance to say to ourselves, I've learned how to repent better so God can restore me better. That's not the point here. The analysis here is to show you that false repentance is not from genuine faith. But true repentance comes from genuine faith. So therefore, the repentance that God accepts here is for you to be genuinely saved. So don't say to yourself, well, I have to do every single thing to the T, to the T, to the T, and then God's going to restore me. No, friends. If you're a Christian today, God has restored you. If you're a Christian today, you have been restored. And what you do is appropriate that repentance by saying to God, God, forgive me because I am a sinner. This, this is not a teaching tool for you to feel that you are better than everyone else. This is a teaching here to call you to be before God, to be open before God, to be honest before God, to be broken before God. We do a good job as Christians when we learn certain doctrines to puff ourselves up because we think we understand it better than everyone else. And we want more grace. We want more mercy. This is not a teaching on that. The Bible doesn't teach for us to work for grace and to work for mercy. What the Bible tells us is to put ourselves in a position where we can receive the mercy of God. We must receive it. So for those of you who have been saved, been transformed by the mercy and grace of God, rely upon Jesus. Do not work in and of yourself to be able to get favor from God, but trust in God. And for those of you who are not saved, and you think, well, I need to do this, this, and this, and this to be saved. No, you need to trust Jesus. Trust the finishing work of Christ. Believe in the work of Christ. This is how we're saved. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, not through your works. Join me as we pray together. Father, we are thankful for grace and thankful for mercy. Love the fact that Samuel said, the Lord has chosen one who is better. David is not better because of all his good works. As a matter of fact, we will learn of David's sin. We will see all the stuff that he will do. What is better? What is better here? It's the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is genuine faith. What is, what is better here is grace and mercy. So God, I pray for us as believers that when we've sinned against the Holy God to trust the work of Christ in us. To pursue Jesus. To exalt Jesus. For those of who are not pursuing Christ like they should, God, restore them.
rescue sinners, God. Bring them to repentance, O Lord. In your mighty and precious name, amen.